you have a Bible, take it and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be in verses 26 through 39. And before we look at that, I just want to remind you that, that these stories are true. Uh, I think sometimes we read them and we forget that this is these are actual people, that Jesus was a real live person, that, that the person that we're going to read about here was was real. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of reading a book or a story that is said to be true. It's nonfiction. It's not false. It's it's real. And you read it and you say, there's no way that really happened. And you get on Google and try to research it, right? Did this actually happen the way that this person said it happened? Because we just can't believe it. I feel like this story is one of those stories where you read it and you say, this is, this is crazy. Did this actually happen? Is this for real? And I just want to affirm that it is. And that that the Jesus of this story is the same Jesus that has power in our lives today, that has power in our community, that has power uh, in each of us as we walk through our daily lives. And so I just want to jump right into it. We're going to read the story and then just sort of try to see all the details and then hopefully draw some application from it. But Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, this is immediately following uh, after Jesus had been on the boat with his disciples and calmed the water, it says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, what have you do to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to, to, to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So verses 22 through 25, we saw Jesus in a boat. 
and they were traveling from the western side of the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of that, there was a storm. So if you were to draw the path of the ship, you might draw it something like this. It starts on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. I guess if I did this for you, I'll start on this side. It went this way, and then sort of went like this through the storm, <laughs> and then landed on the other side. And it lands in this this area on this on the coast of the Sea of Galilee called the, the Gerasenes. There's actually some dispute about exactly where this was or what town it was. There's, there's some towns that have this name but aren't on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, so it really couldn't be that town, especially if these pigs are running down into the Sea of Galilee and drowning. But it's, it's clearly on the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Where it is is not as important as what actually happened here. Uh, it's hard to say exactly even why Jesus was heading this way. They, remember, they had gone in the boat. He said, let's get into the boat. And in verse 22, he said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they get in the boat. They go across to the other side of the lake. And then you see at the end of the story that they get back in the boat, and they go right back to where they came from. Uh, it's very interesting. So the events of verses 26 through 39 happened in the midst of this, and it just makes me wonder if Jesus didn't go to this area specifically to help this man that he was seeking him out, that Jesus had a reason to be there. Not only that, but Jesus enters into a Gentile territory, into an area that is not filled with Jews. Uh, we know that in part by the fact that there's a herd of pigs there. Pigs were unclean to the Jewish people. And so this is an area where Jesus wouldn't typically have gone, where the Jewish people wouldn't have typically been. But he comes and he brings the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to this individual, not only to that individual, but to the Gentiles. We see at the end that this gospel spreads. This again emphasizes Luke's large point that Jesus is the Savior of the world, of all people. There's a heart to see all people come to put their faith in him. So as we look at the story here, it says, verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land. So Jesus steps out of the boat, and immediately as he steps out of the boat, he's, he's met by a man. Now let's get the picture in our head, Jesus steps off the boat, and and a naked man approaches him. That's what happens here. It's 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 somewhat amusing to us, but the nudity is actually not amusing at all. It's it's disgraceful. It's it's abominable to these people. Can you imagine someone walking around down Bardstown Road with no clothes on? He's arrested, right? Because this is not what you do. And this man is there. This is how he's he's living. It's offensive. It's appalling. You might imagine his face, even his, his whole body is just weathered with, with living with no clothes and no shelter. He hasn't had a home. He's, he's homeless. He lives amongst the tombs, it says. You imagine his, his, his wild eyes, his, his unkept beard and, and hair. When was the last time this man had a shower? He's this wild-eyed man separated from all humanity. He's more like an animal than a human being, wouldn't you say? He lives out amongst the elements. He's a complete outcast, and he's in fact surrounded by death. He lives amongst the tombs, probably caves where they had buried people, and he lives amongst them. He's completely filled with demons here, it says. Uh, they met, there met him a man from the city who had demons. That's how he's identified. He's given no name. It's just the guy that had demons. That's, that's who he was. It's interesting here, Luke simply makes that statement regarding demons. There's no explanation, there's no defense of the reality of the supernatural forces of wickedness in the world. Scripture is, is clear that there are unseen, unclean spirits that cause chaos, chaos in the world in which we live. They cause evil in this world. It would seem that 
that in Jesus' time, this activity of Satan and of demons was was heightened, that, that there was something unique going on at this time. And it, it, at least, at the very least, it was concentrated to the specific areas that Jesus was, that that all the demons were focused on Israel. All the demons were focused on, on this area where, where Jesus was. But the reality is that there are still, uh, there, the activity of Satan and demons still exists in the world today. We don't want to deny that. Think again about this, this man. Verse 29 talks about how the nearby town had tried to subdue him. Uh, they had bound him with chains and, and shackles, it says, but he would just, he would break these chains. He'd be filled with supernatural strength from these demons and he would just break the chains and then be driven back out into desolate places by the demons that controlled him. Mark tells us that as he was out there, he took the sharp stones that were there and he would cut himself. Maybe in, in a way trying to release these demons that were inside him. So get this picture. He's just a self-destructive individual out there. He's completely under the control of these powerful demons. He has. He's he's not only destroying himself, but he's destroying this this community. He's causing fear in the town around him, and no one, absolutely no one, knows what to do with this guy. I mean, they've tried everything that they can. They've they've bound him, and nothing works. So this is a very helpless and hopeless situation. The town probably despised him. They wished that he would just disappear. And so now, though, they're just simply forced to tolerate his existence. He lives in the mountains. He's there. We just, we can't go there. No picnics on the beach because that crazy guy's up there. And so they tolerate with him. And then Jesus arrives. Jesus steps on the boat, out of the boat, and the demon-possessed man arrives. He's the welcoming committee for this area. He's the Walmart greeter or the, the hostess at the restaurant. Uh, he doesn't really smile and wave or ask how many are in Jesus' party, though. Instead, he, he cries out, it says. He, let, he lets out some sort of unearthly yell. He cries out, and then it says that he fell down. He falls down on the ground before Jesus, and he shouts out, he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, he says, please, I beg you, don't torment me. Isn't that amazing? This man who could not be controlled by anyone, who, who couldn't even be changed, is now powerless, falling down before the feet of Jesus, begging Jesus, please, Jesus, don't torment me. Think about that. Why? What is it about Jesus that brings this this man to his knees, that brings demons to their knees? That's who Jesus is, isn't it? And the man, the, the man recognizes, the demons recognize it. James tells us the demons know who God is, and they tremble. And it says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The Most High God. He is the God of gods. There is no other God above him. All Created beings, seen and unseen, God rules over them all. He is the creator of them all, and he rules over them all. He controls them all. No one can do anything apart from his will. All other gods, in fact, are not gods at all. They are not gods. He is the only God. And any authority that, that Satan or the demons have is is a given authority. It's, it's a borrowed authority. It's something that Jesus, that God has given them, to have this rule, but he is in control of them. He is God most high. It's a specific kind of Gentile understanding of who God is. He is the most high God. You think about these other religions that have so many gods, 
and Jesus and God is the the true God. He's recognized as as the Most High. He rules over. All these demons are controlled by him. Whatever we can say about demons from this passage, we won't do a whole study on what are demons, who is Satan. But what we can say from this passage is that the way I would put it is that they are on a they're on a leash, and the length of that leash is determined by God Most High. There's a dog that lives behind us. His name is Rascal, and that's a good name for Rascal. Rascal's always trying to jump over our fence. He's always barking at us and yelling and screaming. And if you would think that if that if he could, he would come and he would eat my whole family. I think that's what he wants to do. He's always threatening us. But however big his bark is, however hard his bite might be, he cannot do anything to us because there's this fence that separates him. And he jumps, and sometimes we think he's going to get over that fence. But he never does, and he has never harmed us. Such is true with the forces of wickedness. They are allowed to have certain power, but God sets up the fences. God is in control of of how much power they have, of where it goes, and and how far they are allowed to go. And Jesus here is the one we see. He's just he's in control of this whole situation. No one could control this man, but now he's at Jesus's feet, and Jesus is in complete control. We see this even more as Jesus converses. Jesus has a conversation with this guy. He has a conversation with the demons. They've made it clear that they know who he is, and so he asks them, what's your name? Uh, not that I don't think he knows it, but just to have them say it here, he's, they, what, is, what is your name, verse 30? And he said, Legion. And Luke then tells us, for many demons had entered him. The word Legion is a, a Roman division of soldiers that would have been 6,000. I don't think that means necessarily that there were 6,000 demons in this man. It just means there was a whole lot of demons in this guy. That he was, he was filled with demons. As Luke says just very plainly that many demons had entered him. However many there were, you would, you would think that Jesus is outnumbered, right? If there's a legion of demons, you think, well, there's only one guy that's standing there. It's just, it's just Jesus. And there's thousands of demons in this guy. You think that they're going to overpower Jesus. But then again, we find this guy begging. That word beg is, is one of the key words in this passage. It says in verse 31, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What's the abyss? <laughs> I, I think this is, this, is, this is the realm of the dead. This is... The, the place where where the dead are confined to. And there it seems that, that as they're recognizing who Jesus is, he's the son of the Most High God, they recognize he has the power to cast them into the abyss, to, to bind them, to keep them from ever coming out again. And they're saying, Jesus, please don't throw us into the abyss. There will be a day when when all the demons, when Satan himself, are thrown into the abyss. Revelation 21 through 3 talks about this, the bottomless pit that they are cast into. But for some reason, in God's sovereignty, they are allowed to to continue to have influence in this world. And we'll see that Jesus does not cast them into the abyss, though he could. But just the recognition of his power here, that, that that's what will eventually happen to them, and that Jesus has more than enough power to do it right now. So they beg him, please, Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss. And then it says... Now a large herd of pigs, verse 32, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Again, they are begging, Jesus, please, not the abyss, let us go to the pigs. 
why did they need to go to the pigs? Was it necessary for them to embody something? Is that what's going on? I don't really know. I'm not sure. It seems to be that way. Um, and Jesus gives them permission. Why does Jesus listen to their request? Why does he Why does he say, yeah, you guys can do that? I really don't know. I'm not really sure exactly what's going on here. But, but what we see above all else is that, again, that Jesus is in control of the situation. They are the ones that are begging him. They are the ones that are asking him. And he is the one that is telling them what they can and cannot do. And so Jesus listens to their request. He gives them permission to enter into the pigs. And then get this picture in your head, right? It says, so he gave them permission, verse 33. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. It's just one sentence, but can you imagine what that would have been like to see that? This man who had been filled with demons, and suddenly they're, they're cast out of him. I don't think you would have seen the demons necessarily, but all of a sudden this herd of pigs just goes crazy on the hillside, and they start running. You might even be able to feel that that thundering. There, I think it's Mark that says there were 2,000 pigs. So 2,000 pigs just running towards the coast. The ground is is, is shaking, and the, the, the pigs are squealing, and they run down the bank, and they go into the water, and all 2,000 pigs drown there. I, I mean, it takes us less than you know 10 seconds to read that sentence, but this is something that would have played out for, you would think, at least five, ten minutes, all these pigs running down the hill, and then they all are just running into the water and drowning. You can hear the squeals of the pigs. You might even hear some of those unearthly screams of demons themselves. It's it's a scene. I mean, it is it is scary. And in fact, people are scared by this. Some people take issue with it, though. Why did Jesus do that? He just destroyed all these pigs. I mean, isn't that a heartless thing for Jesus to do? I think we'd say two things. I think, number one, Jesus values this man's life more than he values any number of pigs. That Yes, animals are created by God, but, but human beings are created in God's image. Wouldn't we rather have that this man to be freed from these demons and the death of the pigs? I think that that is there in the midst of a, a culture that, that seems to hold up animal rights as equal to Human rights, uh, th- that's a, this is a difficult passage, but I think for Jesus, this man's created the image of God. It's better for him to be freed from these demons and for them to go into the pigs than anything. The other question I want to ask is, why do we blame Jesus? I mean, the demons are the ones that took him down into the water and drowned all the pigs. He just cast them in there. They, they were the ones that took control. At least part of what's going on here is this is evidence. This, is, this proves that there were, really, truly were demons in this man because they went into the pigs, and then the pigs ran and drowned themselves. So it's at least evidence of that. But it, but it's also evidence of something else that we've seen throughout this that we that I haven't pointed out yet, but just this, that, that Satan is a destroyer. That Satan is destructive. John 14.10 says that Satan is the thief, and the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. You think about this man. His life had been destroyed. He was cutting himself with rocks. He was out in the midst of the elements. His life had been destroyed. If you think about any family he may have had, that was over with. This town was turned upside down by him. This is what Satan does. He destroys things. He has come to kill and to destroy. 
as I think about that, Matt and I had a discussion this week just trying to think, because I, I don't see a lot of demons possessed people in the world, at least that I know of. I've never had an encounter that maybe some of you have had or that you've, you've heard about with someone who is demon-possessed. But I think we see evidence of Satan's destructive work throughout the world. Satan is a destroyer. He has come to steal and to kill and destroy. And we might not see it in individuals, but he is certainly at work in things like abortion, the killing of unborn babies. That is one of the most satanic things I can think of, to kill a child unborn, created in the image of God. You think about about drugs. I think about the issue of meth that continues to rise in our nation. It is such a destructive drug. It, it destroys people. It, it destroys their appearance. It destroys their whole lives. All addictions like that. Drug addictions, addictions to anything else, it, it causes destruction. It causes death. It steals life. You think of self-destructive tendencies. This man was cutting himself. We know that, that that's that's something that exists in our society. This issue of cutting, and it is, it's, it's, it's satanic. Issues like suicide, where people actually kill themselves, they kill the image of God that, that they are. Satan is alive and well. We may not see individuals that are possessed, but, but there is destruction, there is death, there is stealing that is happening in our age, and we can see that demons and Satan are involved in that. But the encouraging thing from this passage, I think, is, that as we ask this question, remember, what's the main question throughout this whole, from from the uh, the calming of the storm all the way up to when Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We saw last week he has power over creation, and very clearly here we see that Jesus has absolute power over demons and the unseen world. That's who Jesus is being. Luke is showing us that Jesus has power over demons and the unseen world. That these demons come and they fall down and they beg Jesus. And he is in complete control of the whole situation. When no one else could do anything to stop this guy, Jesus, by the word of his mouth, can, can take care of the whole situation. He is in control. And so as I think about those things that I listed, about abortion and drug addiction and self-destruction that we see within our culture, I think very often, if you're like me, I can just say, that's a hopeless situation. I, I don't even know where to begin with those that may be caught up within those things. And then you look at this guy. I mean, he had it all rolled into one. I mean, he was completely hopeless, seemingly helpless, that there was nothing to be done. And Jesus comes in with one word, heals him, cast out the demons. Jesus has absolute power over demons in the unseen world. And so I think it's an encouragement that we keep, we keep bringing light into darkness. We keep praying for the end of abortion in our society. We keep, we keep asking that God would deliver those that are stuck in addiction and drugs. We go to them. We don't get so scared to say that, well, I don't know what to do. We say, well, Jesus does. Jesus has absolute power over demons in the unseen world. The, the herdsmen see this. Verse 34, they saw what happened and they, they ran away. <laughs> they go and they tell everyone that they can what has happened. And as they share the story, no one believes it. They say, no way, are you serious? So you're telling me that that guy up on the mountain, the guy that screams and yells all the time, that he's actually, there's no demons anymore, and you're telling me that all your pigs ran down the hill and drowned themselves in the Sea of Galilee. I don't believe it. 
And they say, it's true, I promise you. They say, I got to see it for myself. And so people from the country and from the city, they just start streaming to this area. They come, they want to see it for themselves. And what do they find here? Verse 35, the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. What a great description. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus has come. And Jesus has absolute power over demons in the unseen world. I think part of that then is this truth that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, and no one is beyond his saving power. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, and no one is beyond his saving power. Remember, why did he come across this lake in the first place? I think he came for this guy in particular. He was seeking out this man. And when he came, he didn't look at him and say, Oh, wow, this situation is a lot worse than I thought. I'm not sure I can handle it. No, he says, I can handle this. No one is beyond his saving power. When no one else could help, Jesus could. When no one else could do anything, Jesus did. He shows up and he heals this man from these demons. Again, I think as we look at issues within culture, and then maybe as we look at specific people, we say, that person, there's no hope for them. There's no hope that they will ever come to a saving knowledge of Christ. There's no hope that their life could ever be changed. Maybe you look at yourself and you think, there's no hope for me. I'm too far gone. Or maybe you look at others and that's that's your attitude. I think this man, if nothing else, shows us that no one is so far gone that they cannot be saved by Jesus. Think about this guy. He's out naked, running around, and now he's sitting, clothed at the feet of Jesus. Before he had fallen down at the feet of Jesus, cowering in fear, and now he's he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. He was out of his mind completely, had no control over himself, and now it says that he's clothed and in his right mind. Think about this picture, that he's amongst the tombs, he's in this place of death, and now Jesus has come and transferred him into the kingdom of life and light. You are not beyond his saving power, and neither is anyone else. And this is in part who we all were. I think that part of this is to show the extreme nature, to show that even those that seem this far gone, that there is hope. But there's also the beauty that this is who we are apart from Christ. That we are naked, that we are in fear of him, that we are out of our mind, that we are dwelling in a place of death. That because of sin, we are under the control of Satan. That that Satan is our father, the father of all lies. He's lied to us. We've believed him all our lives. That that's who we are apart from Jesus. That we sin. That we are self-destructive. All sin is self-destructive. We continue to sin. We continue to destroy our very lives. That Jesus shows up, and he does what no one else could do. It's not a amount of, of religion, or it's not some sort of uh, uh, some sort of things that we do. If I do enough good works, then, then that'll deal with the problem. Just like the townspeople had tried everything and couldn't control him, sometimes people try everything else before they'll try Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that can bring deliverance. Jesus is the only one that has the authority on earth to forgive sins because he is the son of the Most High God. He is God himself. And so he shows up here in this man for whom there was no hope. He gives him hope. And for us, he comes when we are lost in our sin, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he comes and he speaks life. He says, it's by faith. You'll believe in me. If you'll put your faith in me alone that I have done what you could not do, that I have 
live the perfect life, and I will give you my righteousness, that I have died in your place so that you do not have to die. If we would believe that, he will save us. So Jesus has absolute power over demons in the unseen world. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, and no one is beyond his saving power. We see then something strange in this passage, something that's not expected. It says in verse 36, And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. But they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Isn't that strange? That Jesus comes and he deals with this man, and then what's the response of the people? Please leave, Jesus. <laughs> they were scared. It's, it's sadly ironic. Jesus cast out the demons, and now the people cast out Jesus. It's this truth that we saw with the soils, that the power of Jesus both attracts and it repels. That they don't know what to do with this guy. He's he's too powerful, and they are they are scared. We we think about those soils that there were the the hard soils, that, and people don't want to receive this word. They don't they don't know what to do with Jesus, and they're not willing to try to figure it out. They say, you know what? If you could just leave, that would be better. And sometimes we look at this, and I I think this is our reaction. Rightly is, what are they thinking? Why why would they why would they throw Jesus out? But isn't that so often what we see as we talk to others, we share the power of Jesus. Jesus can deliver you from this. Jesus can, can bring salvation to you. Jesus can, can solve the issues that are in your life. He's not going to make everything rosy and everything perfect, but, but he's definitely going to help. And, and if nothing else, he will give you a, 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 eternal, a hope for eternity that, that you will be with God forever. And people say, I don't want anything to do with that. Could you please stop talking to me about who Jesus is? Because this absolute power, it, it attracts people, but it also repels them. And how ironic that the man it attracts is the guy who is possessed with demons, that he is the only one that's sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think this is just an encouragement that we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised as we talk to others that there are some who receive it and some who reject it. The power of Jesus, in some sense, is too much for some people that can't they can't grasp it, and they just would rather have nothing to do with it. I think that's in part what was going on with the Pharisees so often. He spoke with Jesus spoke with such authority, he spoke with such clarity, unlike they did, and they just didn't know what to do with it. And so rather than try to understand it, they just reject it. And in a world where there are no absolutes, we come to people, we speak with absolutes. We say, This is who Jesus is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one, there's no other way to the Father except through him. We speak with absolutes, and people say, Ah, uh, I don't really want to listen to that. That's that's just too hard. He's speaking with too much power, too much authority. But then we see this wonderful ending. Jesus gets in the boat and returns. We'll see where he returns to next week. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged, again, more begging, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's a beautiful ending, I think. This man who who had begun, he was repelling Jesus. He he was begging Jesus, don't, don't harm me. And now he says, 
Jesus, can I come with you, please? <laughs> can I get in the boat? And, and I just want to be a part of this. Maybe there's fear in his heart. Think about how scary this has been for him. For however many years he's been trapped by these demons. He's been living among the tombs. He's been running around. He's, he's probably embarrassed. He's got to go back to this town where everyone knows who he was. So part of it is, Jesus, will you please take me with me? Will you, will you please take me with you? So, so that I know that this isn't going to happen to me again. So I don't have to go back and, and face the people that have seen me in this situation. They've seen how I just completely lost it. I don't want to go back there. Can I just come with you, Jesus? And it, it says, but Jesus sent him away. <laughs> Jesus said, no, you can't come with me. Why? He says, return to your home. I wonder what that home was. Was there a wife and children that were there that he had been away from for some time? Maybe he was just heading back to his parents' house. I don't know. But it says, return to your home, return to your city, and declare how much God has done for you. He tells him, I want you to go back, and I want you to tell everyone there all that God has done for you. And then it says, so he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That word declare there in, in verse 39, uh, it's this idea of giving a detailed account. Give the details. Tell them everything that God has done for you. And so he goes and he proclaims to the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's a great truth that if we have been changed by Jesus, we must tell others all that God has done for us. That's the natural overflow of being a disciple. If we have been changed by Jesus, we must tell others all that he has done for us. I love that phrase. Isn't that helpful? What do you need to tell people? Tell people all that God has done for you. That's a simple thing. I think sometimes we're not sure what to say to people. We, we think that, that we have to have a certain number of verses or these specific ones, or we have to have it all, all the answers figured out. And what Jesus tells this guy whose discipleship has consisted of probably a couple of hours of sitting at Jesus' feet. He says, just go tell everyone what God has done for you. Now, I am I am very sure that, that there needs to be theology as we talk to people, that we need to be clear about what the gospel is. I'm not saying, just go say, well, God has been really good to me. But we need to be clear about who Jesus is, that he is the Savior of the world, that there is salvation in no one else except for him. But there is a sense in which we just go and we say what Jesus has done for us. It's this testimony. I know Joel talks about this so often that, that we just share our testimony. What is our testimony? Well, it begins with who you were. Who were you before Jesus changed your life? What was your life like? So we say this is who we were. Imagine this guy's story. Let me tell you about who I was. I used to not have a house. I was homeless. I ran around naked. I was cutting myself. I was screaming. I was possessed by a legion of demons. And I just the, the story is, is crazy. And everyone would say, that's unbelievable. That couldn't have been you. And he said, yeah, it was me until Jesus came. So we tell who we were, and then we tell our response to the gospel, that when Jesus came, he spoke life. I, I saw my sin. I repented. I turned from my sin, and I turned to Jesus. And then we talk about how our life has changed. And so this man would stand there, clean-shaven, clothes on, Bible in his hand, maybe. <laughs> But he's got the scars to prove it, doesn't he? The places that he was got. I can tell you who I was. Let me tell you what God saved me from. But let me tell you who I am now because of the power of Jesus. If we've been changed by Jesus, it's now our responsibility to go and to tell all that God has done for us. 
And don't make it too complicated, I think. We want to be clear again about the gospel, but at the same time we just say who we were, what happened when Jesus invaded our lives, and we repented and believed in him alone for salvation, and then talk about how he has changed our lives. Can you imagine this guy go back, going back into that town? That was, a hard, that was a tough crowd. This is the crowd that threw Jesus back in the boat and said, we'd like you to leave. Now Jesus is telling him, you go back. Talk. I think it took time. I think it took a long time. I think they saw him change and they said, eh, I give him three months, he'll be back out there, running around in the hills. And then a year later, people start to say, well, maybe this is true. Maybe he really has changed. Two years later, three years later, people finally start to listen to him. And suddenly the town sees him and his conversion as, as true. It's true for us, I think. Sometimes who we are is all the people can remember. We go back and they say, I don't know if this is real. But over periods of time, over over years, over years people see the change in our lives. And slowly, 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 they say, well, God really has changed you. Can you tell me about that? Can you tell me what happened in your life? So be encouraged by this man. I think these are the encouragements that we draw. If I could just say them again. Again, the, the main idea is, is, is who is Jesus? We're finding out who he is. We saw that he has absolute power over creation last week, and this week we see he has absolute power over demons in the unseen world. That nothing is over him, that all must bow before him. He is Lord Most High. This is who Jesus is. He's the Son of the Most High, and all must bow before him. Secondly, Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, and no one is beyond his saving power. This is why he came. He is seeking out those that are lost, and no one, Neither you nor I is beyond his saving power. And no one that we can think of, no one that we can imagine, is beyond his ability to save. The power of Jesus attracts and repels. That there are some that will see the power of Jesus and they will embrace it. They will allow it to transform them. And others will reject it. We continue to proclaim the truth of who he is. And then finally, if we've been changed by Jesus, we must tell others all that he has done for us. Keep it simple. Just tell them what he's done, how he has changed your life. It's an unbelievable story, but it's true. This is what Jesus has done for this man, and it's what he's done for us. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then after that moment of silence, I'll pray for us and we'll sing to close. Father, we come now, we worship you as Lord Most High. But there is no other God above you. There is no power above you. Any power that we have, any power that demons or Satan have is is a borrowed power. It's one that you give. They are on a leash. They cannot touch us apart from your will and your permission. But we bow before you even as this man did. We bow before you and recognize that you alone are God. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have saved us. Lord, you've come to seek and to save the lost, and that none of us are beyond your saving power. I pray if there's anyone here that their their heart right now is just is repelling that truth, is saying that's not who Jesus is. Jesus can't save me. Lord, that you would break up that stony ground, that you would that you would keep Satan from eating that seed, the seed of the word that needs to sink down. Lord, that you would keep the cares of the world from choking it out but rather that it would get down in 
that Jesus would become more and more attractive, Lord, that they would see that you can change their lives. Lord, and we thank you that you have changed us completely. Lord, that we can look at this man and say, apart from your grace, that's us. Apart from you guarding and keeping us, that, that we are this man. But you have changed us, Lord. So help us to go and to tell others, anyone and everyone, all that you have done for us. To proclaim and declare how much you have done for us. So thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you are destroying the works of Satan who has come to destroy. Lord, I pray against the work of Satan in this world. I pray against his destructive powers. I pray against abortion. I pray against drug addiction. I pray against suicide and murder. I pray against addiction to drugs and to alcohol. I pray against all these forces of wickedness that are destroying people's lives. And I pray that you would come and set them free, God and that you would use us and our simple stories to transform their lives. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.